0: How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke,
1: and I'm jay
0: and you're listening to the Cinema Style Show podcast, episode 125, <laughs> 125, Pajama Edition. Pajama Edition. Well, what wasn't that pajamas? No, it feels like a milestone. I just noticed it today, that right? We have really. I feel like once upon a time we actually dressed nicely for this, and now it's like sweatpants, right? Yeah. Tank tops, no, big good. woolly jumpers that look like a bear pelt.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I had to kill a bear for this. <laughs> we all know that in, a, in a, the old state of cutting <laughs> you.
0: Yeah. How you doing, Jake?
1: Yeah, I'm good. I'm just tired. We've both been pretty busy, but that's it. Oh, yeah.
0: well, you got a friend. Yeah, Nala's wanting some attention that's jake's cat she was uh,
1: just at the window sleeping and it's the we've been talking for like 20 minutes yeah and then as soon as you said how's it going guys i'm zeke She like whoa i gotta jump in on this yeah
0: it's my um <laughs> it's my signature entrance that's what gets people i just walk into rooms now and just go how's it going and everyone turns their head
1: yeah now nah, makes sense yeah. everyone's so used to listening to podcasts yeah oh 100- my god Exactly. It's a recording. So, Jake, are we
0: going to kick off with our trivia facts for our film later this week, or do we? We
1: indeed are. So, I have a bit of a trivia fact for the film of the week, Blade Runner. Of course, directed by... 1982. 1982, directed by Ridley Scott. And, um, yeah, and and I thought it would be very easy easy to do... um, Well, maybe not easy, but... uh, we could go down a long rabbit hole if we talk about the the many many cuts of this film. Yes. So I decided to talk about specifically one cut, the theatrical cut. Okay. With the infamous happy ending, as they call it, and that some of the footage they used for that happy ending, which includes helicopter shots of like bushland and stuff, was actually leftover footage from The Shining. That's pretty crazy. I thought was pretty interesting. Which yeah. we
0: did for our episode fifty director's corner for um. Stanley Kubrick.
1: Yeah, that's it. It looks like Nala's distracting you. So while you tell your trivia, Zeke, yes. I'm going to go and put Nala out. No, that's cool. <laughs> put, her, put her outside. I'm not going to put her out. Nah. She's, she's not that inconvenient. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, well, while Jake is taking care of his uh, cat, I would just like to say that the fact I've got for the 1982 Blade Runner film directed by Ridley Scott is Dustin Hoffman almost played Deckard, who obviously, you know, if you saw our poll last week... Both of the films that we had up for grabs were Harrison Ford starring films, and it was said in the early works that Scott wanted Dustin Hoffman, obviously of the Graduate fame, uh, mm. to play Deckard's character. Now I cannot imagine that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean the the, cast, <clears throat> the casting of Harrison Ford. There's, I think mean, there's a lot to say about him, but I yeah I can't imagine. I literally can't imagine it.
0: Yeah, Dustin I mean, Hoffman. It's a, it's I I think it had something to mostly predominantly do with Hoffman's height being the big problem because Dustin Hoffman is He's actually, very short. He is very short.
1: Well, that was almost a problem
0: in the graduate. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And then the other uh candidates were people like Tommy Lee Jones and Christopher Walken. Oh, um, oh that. There's some weird picks. Yeah. Who- <laughs> I could see Tommy Lee Jones. Yes, um, he always plays a I couldn't see Christopher Walken. Mm. Tommy Lee Jones, I, I'm just picturing, obviously he's very much older in, in No Country for Old Men, but he does have that that sort of presence in there that, right. that you could totally see correlate over in the 80s. So I could see him out of all of those candidates, but Hoffman, no, I couldn't see at all.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Is it, yeah, it's kind of, because like, there's such a stoicness that,
0: yeah, which... that
1: Harrison Ford effortlessly brings...
0: Almost like he doesn't want to be there.
1: Well, yeah, look, it's we'll talk about his performance, but I've, I've thought about that watching this film. Like, who else could play Deckard? And that's kind of a weird question, because he sort of doesn't play a huge role in, in why the film is so important, I think. but Yeah. I, we'll, we'll get to that in the future, but I want to quickly ask you the 1,100 films that you must see at least once in your lifetime poster that's behind you, Zeke. Yes. Do you reckon Blade Runner's on that list? Absolutely. It is, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's like, oh, that's pretty obvious, but the Green Mile wasn't. Yeah, but this so. film's
0: hallmarked as one of the best sci-fi films of all time. Yeah. That's so, so awesome. um, And we're going to probably jump into the exploration of sci-fi genre later in the show. Mm. But before then, Jake, what have you caught in the last week?
1: Yeah, so I haven't caught much. I told you off the show um, that I I know. It's last week I said this was a great opportunity for me to finally watch Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and I actually didn't. And I actually did it on purpose. Same. Because not yeah, on so not now, on
0: purpose until you brought the rationale <laughs> table, the and <laughs> then I was like, yeah, that was that was the reason.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, no, no, so um, so when we do eventually talk about Blade Runner later on this show, um, we can sort of talk about it in this unaltered way where neither of us know too much. About twenty forty nine, I know you've seen clips. Yeah, this is
0: going to be purely uh, a narrow scoped, uh, you know, breakdown of the first film. Right. So this is basically just a pre twenty sixteen review of Blade Runner, really. Because yeah, twenty forty nine exactly. came out. The, the, what, the, um,
1: the context of the new film is going to play very little into our discussion, which yeah. I think is a great thing because we Absolutely. can always do Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Yeah. In any at any
0: time. Unfortunately, we couldn't say that if we had to do Raiders instead. If Raiders had won, we would all know where where that goes. We've
1: already seen all the others. That's (laughs) that's a good point. But, um, I mean, that works as a trilogy as well, and only a trilogy. Yeah, Only a trilogy. There is no other film. No, there is not. Um, But that being said, the only other thing I've seen this week, because it's been a mammoth week as always, I saw Bo Burnham's Inside... Which uh, is a very recent uh, quote unquote stand up special.
0: Watched it last night.
1: Very nice, very yeah. nice. So. so
0: you watched it, and I've been umming and aring about watching it because mm. I am not a. It's gonna be, uh, I'll sorry. I'll let you take first take on this one. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. What did you think of it?
1: Um. I, so yeah, I'm not a huge Bo Burnham fan no. in, in so, the sense that so, I. Okay. In the sense that I haven't really watched any of his other stand up. I obviously we thought he was good in Promising Young Woman, and I liked Eighth Grade, which he directed, which is I was surprised to understand he's a director. Um, but this is very different. This is a very interesting stand-up special because I think it's more of a guy's. I think it's more of an exploration of, of loneliness, existential loneliness, and literal loneliness being locked away in a room for a year, which, due to COVID, is what happened, and him trying to be creative in that tiny, claustrophobic space... And I think it does so much more than your average stand-up special. Like, I laughed way more at Bill Burr's Paper Tiger. But I stood being like, wow, there's a lot more to appreciate in the filmmaking and the way he uses filmic language to tell jokes in this stand-up special and how deep it goes. I thought it was very great.
0: Um, So I'm in the same boat. Okay. I have seen all of his previous specials. Of so the two oh, okay. were What and I'm trying to remember the other one. Um, I'm going to have to double-check this now. Yeah. Well,
1: you've seen his others.
0: Uh, he's got two others that he's done over the last 10 years. Obviously, in the, the inside, we see him hitting 30. I think the other two Literally, specials were yeah. from 2013 and 2017. So he's been making specials since he was like 21, 22, 23. So, um, yeah, I've I've seen his other two specials. I'm not a big musical comedy fan, like that, that mm. stand-up delivery style. Right, a lot of music in this. Um, and which he does keep true to that with this. However, because um, I'm not a big fan of that, but people really like Tim Minchin and people really like Bo Burnham for that sort of yeah. musical comedy stuff. Not my. It's not obviously it's not conventional, but I don't think stand up can be conventional. Really, like I think there's different ways of delivering stuff, and comedy's such an absurd, subjective right. thing. You know, we love Bill Burr, but I know people that hate Bill Burr. So mm. it's like. I love the the openness that that can have. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of that, so obviously I was a little hesitant that he had a third special. And then I kind of got like the f- the feedback from this from sort of the community and saying this was not like the others. This is not just a stand up show an mm. hour an hour of, of funny music with jokes and stuff. This is way more than that. Like you said, it's mm. an intra- introspective uh, exploration of creativity, depression, mentality. Of a performer, um, existentialism, sort of, I some, at times identity crisis, and mm. uh, I don't know if I would count this as a stand-up special. I yeah, think I, is, it's
1: it's akin to like the American Animals feature narrative doco melding that it does, where this is kind of a. It's, it's
0: in my opinion, it's a documentary, right? It's like way more documentary than it is stand-up mm. because. Yeah, there are bits where he's singing music, but we actually see him. There's the reflective. There's so much reflectivity in this, you know. We're seeing the apparatuses that are creating um, the shots. We're seeing him mm. putting flashlights behind his back to create the the blip effect in time with his music. Yeah, like yeah, we, yeah. we see the modes of construction. We see him constructing the songs that he then goes on to sing. Like or. Even the 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 score, we see him constructing the score. Like there's so much of of, of reflection in that, and and then it's that f- mixture between reflection and performative. Really, mm. um, I would say this is, like I said, I think this is more documentary than stand up. Yeah. Of course, it's. I going, wouldn't disagree. Yeah. It makes you laugh. It is easily one of the most creative amalgamations of those two genres I've ever Mm, seen. Yeah. Um, And I I loved it for that. I love the um, exploration into a performer's mind from a factual point of view and not from a dramatic point of view. Um, I think this was a really interesting uh, way to do that. Um, And you're kind of left thinking what I find really interesting is, and I was going to bring this up on the show and I thought about it after I watched it, because I watched it and then I ended up stewing over it for a good Mm. 30 or so minutes. A lot of the reactions I saw to it were... empathetic, but also projective reactions. Like, they understood what he was going through or having his identity problems. And I think they're missing the point because he brings up very early on... About how, particularly, white people have to project their own sort of mm. look what I'm doing. I understand what you're, I'm being empathetic um, mentality. So, I think that was the wrong takeaway from it. That I, because I saw a lot of people reacting to it, like, oh man, I know how this feels. And I, I, and I think he comments very early on in the special how that's very selfish to try and. Uh, sometimes you should just take something on its on its face value and what that person's trying to say and stop trying to bring yourself into it. Uh,
1: yeah, I think... I mean, I know it's generally a comedian's job to just make jokes out of everything, even if... And I'm not saying Bo Burnham doesn't agree with what he's saying, but I think it's a ridiculous thing to say, oh, just take it at face value, don't read into my work. Like, that's a bit ridiculous, because that is sort of the point of art, is so anyone's interpretation... Should and can be valid. So, if people watch this and like, oh, I empathize with this or I relate to his struggle, then why are they not allowed to like the movie because of said thing? And and like, he makes fun of content a lot, and that, that's one of my favorite jokes is when he's reacting to the reaction yeah, to, the to the reaction re- <laughs> to the reaction. It's brilliant, and I thought of that exact joke but in my head before. He there's, executes there's the it really well. See of
0: that too. It's a, mm. it's a comedic aspect, but he also underlines it with you know, how he, he starts off with critiquing it at face value and then he gets to the second layer and he starts critiquing his critique. Yeah. And it, and what we start to see is the layers of insecurity that, you know, through more of his reactions, it yeah. gets darker and progressively darker the more he has to review himself. Yeah. And It's a great um,
1: joke and and it's enhanced by the fact that it's not he's not on the stage because he can actually edit in the picture in picture. It enhances the joke because we see visually... When doing, it's the same with the the white woman's Instagram some where he's able to change the aspect ratio and change the lighting and, and change his outfit and do all of these things on the fly because he can edit those changes on the fly yeah. and it enhances the joke and makes it funnier it gets dark by the end though it gets very dark but yes. but that that's the thing is like why would you show yourself going to that place on camera and, and showing that if you think it's pretentious for people to relate to it more than just what their the baseline thinking is? I get what you're saying. He
0: is hallmarking his own hypocrisy quite a few times, though. Yeah. I well, exactly. I aware exactly. Of, of what, I think what he's saying, like I said, and you're 100% right, mm. why put yourself Why put yourself breaking down on camera? I personally, I don't understand that methodology myself. Um, it's different when someone else is filming it and, and capturing it, but when you're like sitting in front of it and, mm. and, and breaking down. And it,
1: well, what I'm specifically saying is why show that? if you believe people aren't allowed to have empathetic... No, I agree. ...relations to the film. I agree.
0: I, I think he's fully aware sometimes of the... Like, he does openly remark that it's, like, hypocritical. Mm. And, and this is where it comes back to that sort of existentialism. He has some serious, like... His, by the end of it, his brain is just outwardly projecting all of this... Yeah. ...this kind of chaotic thought and... Um, I was gonna the, one of the things that actually while I was watching it I'm like this is like the comedian's apocalypse now really <laughs> and I know we made that joke we made that joke on Tropic Thunder I think Tropic Thunder is definitely trying to do a parable of this but this is the reality version this is the true mm. heart of darkness experience you know this is the deeper he goes into this year the more he kind of loses his grip on reality um,
1: yeah because we're seeing we're seeing the front that he's putting on and, like, we all dealt... I mean, when we first went into lockdown a year ago, I live-streamed 14 hours of myself just talking to a group chat. Mm. Like, th- there's this... When you, everyone goes into lockdown, there's this expression that you want to get out, and you, you don't... You, you need to fill your head with something to do. And even though this is something that he can do, I can work on the special and do these jokes and make this movie, but after a year of just complete isolation, your brain's going to melt. Yeah. So, it's it's not... There's no and, nothing facetious about it ser- at all,
0: and that's why i seriously yeah I seriously think this is the closest thing we might get to a sort of a documentary equivalent of that because mm. it's like it's like in heart of darkness We're in apocalypse now the further you go down the river the the mad the more matter and the blurring of lines of reality and and cynicism mm. becomes you know it becomes all one uh, uh you know homogeneous mess basically because. Yeah, it's like at the start he's like making fun of people for, you know, out like projecting their emotions onto other people's oppressions or right. try or making other people have to. Like he has that whole bit where he's like, "Can anyone just shut the f up for mm. an hour?" And, and the joke just goes, and it's it's funny because that's the thing. It's the absence of of that in-house comedic laughter, that audience laughter that yeah. makes that go from the start of a pretend stand-up routine to kind of a projection of insecurities and, mm. and anger and frustration and what's really going on in his head because it kind of gets uncomfortable because it goes to that just that little bit too long where you're just like, okay, dude, geez, chill. Like- yeah.
1: Well, that's the thing. He got his wish. Everyone else did, did shut up for a year yeah. and he didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't like it very much. So, yeah, I mean, but that all being said, the fact that we're having this kind of conversation about what is labelled a stand-up special is
0: it's pretty astonishing. you got to give props to Bo Burnham. I honestly think if it's... It, if this had come out closer to Oscar season or award season, this thing would get some sort mm. of push. Like, I think it's easily one of the most original quote-unquote stand-up specials I've right. ever seen. I don't call this a stand This is a docu. This is a documentary first stand-up mm. up special second because this is an... It's not that different from Dick Johnson's Dead. It's not that different. No, it's really not. Yeah. It's not that different to... I, I don't understand how this could be considered a... Um, I think Dick Johnson's actually a pretty good aptly um, comparison, because I think this... Mm. It's all true. So what he's doing, it, it's all factual. Yeah. Like, he's not constructing a reality. When you go on a stand-up special, you are he's in a controlled environment. And, and I think... This is more about, you know, because we get little um, little look-ins to his life and his his youth and how he felt as a younger man because Mm. that's what he talks about. He talks about when he wanted to quit performing for five years and Mm. just when he decided to finally get back into it, COVID hit and then this special happened. And Mm. I think... That theology is put in there at the tip of the second and third act. So I I really do think this is closer to a documentary and a very unique documentary at that. And Mm. I think it's easily... what It's the best thing he's done in terms of his stand-up specials. For me, personally, that's... um, But in terms of a a stand-up comedian expressing creativity, it's easily the most creative I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's sadly the only thing I've seen in the last week. Okay. I haven't even watched more of the UK offers. I so just just can't do it. Yeah, you're a busy boy.
0: <laughs> um, I have managed to get something else. Okay, in, good. Uh, good. Good, this good, good. I'm just going to quickly double check. i only got one thing. Yeah, okay. Well, it's not one thing. It's actually 28 separate things. Um, I watched volume one and volume two of Love, Death and Robots. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I was wondering what the hell you were talking about. So, hence the why you haven't seen it. All of that. I'm going to have to sit down and log all 28 of them on, on Letterboxd. It's like Black um, Mirror. Black Mirror is all separate movies they consider each yeah, episode. Yeah, and it's like... So I really wanted to... The funny thing is, and this is... Be warned, if you haven't seen any of this show, which I hadn't at this point, don't hit play on Love, Death and Robot straight away on Netflix because it plays Volume 2 first.
1: Oh, interesting. Are um, you sure
0: you didn't... Okay, that's you weird. You just click play. So I got halfway through Volume 2, realized I was on Volume 2 and then switched back to Volume 1, finished Volume 2 last night. Ah, oh, interesting. So, Volume 2 has 8 episodes. So, it's 26, sorry, not 28. Um, and Volume 1 has 18 episodes. Um, so, a couple of highlight episodes. Um, I would have to say, in Volume 1, I actually think The Three Robots is probably my favourite, which is the first okay. one. Okay. Um, I'm just going to have to quickly run through them. I really liked Three Robots, and I really liked... I think it was the... I'm going to say it's this, the cow, I think it was called, which was like the three mechs, and it was like a cel-shaded animation. Mm. Um, in Volume 2, the one with Nolan North was easily my favourite one, uh, which was the noir boy. one. My Have boy. you seen it?
1: No, no, I haven't seen any of this. Oh, I just, Nolan, I just I... love
0: Nolan North. Oh, okay. You haven't seen any of Love, Death and Robots? No. Really? Oh, I, don't even good. Know, I don't even okay. know. I've just heard of so, it a lot. What, for... It's an anthology series. So it's Mm. so the the volume one is eighteen separate and different animated styles and they range anything from two D old classic twelve frames a second animation sort Mm. of stuff to your sort of your frostbite engine CGI like full blown human CGI look. Right. Like the whole range. And and obviously, you know, being two years apart from each other, the what the volume two ones on the CGI are looking even better. Mm. Like they're looking that next level. The one that Nolan North's in, um, I think it's called the, the the cap or something like that. Um, that's a very Blade Runner esque one. Okay, and that one's in that full blown CGI get up. And Jesus, my God, has how crazy... I don't understand why they haven't made full movies with that technology. Like that, Mm. you know, the cutscene technology that looks um, absurdly good. Like,
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because like Ratchet & Clank, the 2016, I guess it's sort of a remake. Well, the the film is an original thing based loosely on the story of the original 2002 Mm -hmm. game. And that is like, you know, a CGI animated film. And while the 2016 counterpart game that Insomniac made has... The cutscenes are just scenes from the movies, Mm -hmm. but... Like, the game looks just as good as that. It's all running on the same technology. So, there, there are very few examples. Of that. I'll say Ratchet & Clank 2016 is as close to that example, using a video game engine to make a full feature film, as far as I'm aware of. So,
0: Pop Squad is the one with Nolan North. That one mm, okay. is my favourite from Volume 2. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's most people's favourite one Uh I like that one probably the most. There's Michael B. Jordan in one of the episodes as an animated, so that's pretty cool. Uh, I'm going to try and switch over to Volume 1. But it's not the Oh, there we go. Um, it's trying to put you in Volume 2 three, again. Three robots. Uh, three robots. And... I'm going to find it. Lucky 13 I thought was really good. And... So is there like an
1: overarching theme or story to... No, it's an anthology.
0: It was... Oh, but Beyond the Aquila Riff was really good, um, albeit very creepy. And the other one I thought was really good was...
1: Yeah, bum, no, they're, the, bum, ones that, they're bum, the ones I bum, definitely,
0: bum, bum, definitely bum, bum. thought were really good. <laughs> Suits. Suits was the other one. Um, Suits. All right. So, basically, Love, Death, and Robots, that's the thematic... Connection of all the anthology. So an right. anthology, I mean, in most anthologies, yeah, they're just a collection of things that have one recurring theme. This probably would be sci-fi horror. Is probably the closest. Right. Well, that, genre. that's more of a genre, yeah, yeah genre based. Um, but not all of them have robots in them, or none all of them. Like they, they, some of them have mon- mostly monsters, like monsters. Sometimes, mm. like I would say, sci-fi fantasy maybe is probably. Just the best way of blanketing them okay. completely. Um, I like I like the idea. I like the formula. I like this idea of putting all these shorts in one place so you can just watch them. And some of them you really like, and some mm-hmm. of them you're like, yeah, it's, Like some of them I just didn't register. They just weren't interesting at all to me. Or, right. Um,
1: the well, there's thing. always there's always a hit or miss in an anthology of that.
0: Yeah, but I really formula. liked it. Like the only other time I've, I don't think I've ever watched like. Something like it is. I watched Halo Legends years ago, which was mm. I think ten separate Halo-related ones with different animation styles, and that was pretty cool. Oh yeah. Um, oh, that
1: you know. Another example just came to mind is Futurama. So there's a Futurama video game, and if you buy the the Beast with a Billion Backs on Blu-ray, which is a Futurama feature film mm-hmm. or four episodes compiled, probably the best one. Ah, and then the first, Bender's Big Score is pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. Um, if you buy that Blu-ray, they actually have all the cutscenes turned into a movie, so you can actually just watch the game story through cutscenes on the DVD. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, and I think I think Letterbox counts it as, as a movie, or yeah. you can log it. Yeah, so I
0: like bills and box. Yeah, uh, that
1: so that was the first one I saw. I'll give you that. That was okay. the first of the four movies.
0: Um, and yeah, so that's pretty much what I watched in the last week. They were really handy to watch because most none of them are longer than twenty minutes, so it made it really ah cool. To just cool burn through them yeah. so uh yeah that's all i've caught in the last week oh, so uh jakey boy you got anything for us on career updates because <laughs> I, sh- I sure don't No,
1: uh, that's okay um yes yeah, so i think i kind of mentioned it the last couple of weeks uh this visor immersive thing that i've been sort of a part of and doing they finally aired the story they did on channel seven on thursday and then i think it went online on saturday night so that is available and i've shared it on clicker and it's over on the visor immersive facebook so it, it's it's Pretty easy to find the story at this point, um, but yeah, they've announced how we're doing trials for immersive, therapeutic VR experiences for palliative care patients. We're starting at Bethesda and Claremont, and it's a really great initiative, and it's cool to be a part of. So, yeah, that that's out there. So uh, it's we're calling it a career update because I haven't done much towards it in the last week, but like it's gone public, like yeah. people now know about it, and I can like, easily explain it because I know but what. You'd be working on it. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, so, that's really cool. And the other thing... So, this was a shocking little email I got that kind of kind of involves you, kind of. You, you were present on the relevant day of this. So, okay. if you remember years ago... And we might have actually talked about this on the podcast in that in this career one? section. Um, really? sorry. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, this one. Um, well, 2019. So... Year one. Year one, yeah. Um, in November 2019, I, I got a paid gig... Um, for my mate Craig who runs this business where they install the shark barrier stuff. Yes. And uh, you went with me one day to get drone footage of the completed in barrier, but I also got footage of them installing it. And there was news coverage there as well. And there was a guy from, I think he said he was from Sydney, doing his own footage. And he said he was getting documentary footage for for a film, mm-hmm. like a documentary feature. And he asked me if I borrow some of my drone footage. So I was like, yeah, yeah. As long as, you know, Craig agrees to it because he's paying for the footage. So as long as he says, yes, that's fine, I'll send you a yeah. Dropbox or whatever um, I got the email the other day skip this was what, like 18 months ago now completely forgot about it and I got an email from this dude like hey my name's so and so you sent us wonderful drone footage uh, we just need your, your signature for your your credit and I was like who the hell what are they talking about <laughs> I didn't know what they were talking about um, and then I remembered like when we went to the beach and I was like oh I know what this is so mm. very happily signed a you thing you totally weren't
0: having a beer while flying the drone
1: <laughs> No, no, never. No, we weren't drinking on the job, never. Um, <laughs> we just did our last exam. It, it was valid. It was, yeah. Yeah, the day of oh, our wow. final... Went to a beer fest. Yeah, we did. That was a busy day. Was it? Very... <laughs> it's a shockingly <laughs> productive haven't, day. I haven't had much since then. <laughs> oh, no. Well, the, the, so the film, I think it comes out in July, which is actually next month, so it's very soon. It's called Envoy Shark Cull, and it's actually a 90-minute documentary narrated by Eric Banner, which well, wow. they must have got Eric Banner. That's pretty cool.
0: So you technically worked on a production with Eric Banner. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. We're going to go, we're on the same
0: red yeah. carpet, I imagine. you to tell him the dry wasn't very good.
1: <laughs> I fucking knew we were going to say something about the dry. <laughs> it's completely ruined that relationship. I like so. Emily's Hulk. How about that? Okay. Um, <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> well, it's time to move oh, into our God. film of the week.
0: <laughs> latest instalment to our countdown through the decades retrospective. We're in the 1980s. It's a director's corner. But mm. Jake, who's the director, and what are we watching?
1: This week on the show, we're talking about your boy Ridley Scott, and the film of the week is Blade Runner.
0: I have a lot of boys.
1: I'm kind of nervous when I take tests. Take tests. <laughs>
0: I've got four skin jobs walking the streets, walking the street. They're either a benefit or a hazard. They're a benefit. It's not my problem. Not my problem. I'm Rachel. Deckard. Have you ever retired a human by mistake? By mistake. By mistake. No. need the old Blade Runner. Blade Runner. This is a bad, bad. How can it not know what it is? If only you could see what I have seen, what I have seen, what I have seen. More human than human is our motto. Rick Deckard, an ex policeman, becomes a special agent with a mission to exterminate a group of violent androids. As he starts to get deeper into his mission, he questions his own identity.
1: Mm. That's interesting that that's part of the log line. He begins to question his own identity. Very importantly. I I guess I thought that was sort of an underexplored
0: element of the film. It is oh, yeah. his is Heck his. No. No. Okay,
1: okay. Well,
0: um, we'll I'm, gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna chime in on that. <laughs> okay, no, no, that's um, fair enough. So obviously this is our Ridley Scott director's corner. Mm-hmm. Ridley Scott is a pretty pretty well-known director you'd say he's easily up there oh he's very
1: very well renowned yeah um and he's working on house of gucci right now with lady gaga and adam driver which is really exciting that's great that's gonna be a great film (laughs) oh um i always forget that he's directing that like it's always about those two like working together with like the the costumes they're wearing on set but it's a ridley scott film straight up he's directing it which Mm. is which is great that he's still active and Make it. Stuff. I'm just
0: looking through all of the Ridley Scott films that mm. I've seen. Um,
1: I've seen four. I've seen The Martian, Alien, Blade Runner, and what's the fourth one? I've seen Gladiator. Yes, and Gladiator. Um, I have
0: seen those four plus American Gangster and Black Hawk Down. Nice. Um, I was I've... meant to watch Body of Lies this week.
1: I didn't have time, but that,
0: that's okay. Yeah. That's uh, that's that's pretty much it. I haven't seen Prometheus or Alien Covenant. Um, don't really have too much. Yeah. To watch I,
1: I think d- I think regard despite the the his return to Alien, I think those four that I mentioned were probably his most important.
0: Yeah, four. Yeah, the the other two that I've added on there. I know, I know people really like both American Gangster and Black Hawk Down. But, yeah, yeah. Um, the, those four are his big four for sure. Thelma Louise might be in there too. I'm okay, sure people really like Thelma yeah, Louise. That's a good point. Yeah, um, don't lock
1: me to that. The foremost important. I don't know if The Martian's that important. In, definitely in... The most,
0: one of the most watched, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a weird film for
1: this guy. I don't know. I don't know. Because I think, I think of Blade Runner and I think of Alien. Those are the two. And Gladiator. and, and Well, think. and Gladiator, but I think more than Gladiator, I think these two films, especially Blade Runner, they have such distinctive visual aesthetic and style that really... I feel like that—that's his strength.
0: I think it's the film that, for me, is iconography is is one of the most prominent mm. films ever to have because there are shots from this film that I can immediately see and within seconds know it's Blade Runner, right? Like they're iconic shots, and um, I think this film really solidified his credentials as a director Mm. because you know everyone really liked alien but this was his one of his follow-up films from that film that really put him on the map right Um, i think
1: this was literally the next film he made so
0: this definitely like and it also i would say even it solidified harrison ford's credentials as a a performer because you know he obviously had a very prominent role in 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 the Star Wars franchise at this point. He'd had two out of three of those films come out. Um, Empire Strikes Back and New Hope were out at this point and Return of the Jedi would come out the following year. Mm. Um, Which I think is interesting context in terms of visual effects but we'll mm. we'll get into that soon. And of course he had uh, Indiana Jones but I think he hadn't played because obviously if you look at you look at his role as Indiana Jones and and Harrison and and for Harrison Ford as Han Solo. Those Harrison two, Ford as Harrison sorry. Ford. <laughs> those two roles definitely have correlation to each other. Mm. Like his his mm. you know Indiana Jones, like his Henry Jones character, and and um his Han Solo character definitely have correlative relationships, and that's obviously. Probably got something to do with the way that there there are quite a few parables between Lucas and Spielberg's way of directing. Yeah, I was going to say that I think um, the
1: fact that they were so close and had similar ideas, mm-hmm. um, I think that's why his performance is kind of comparable between yeah, those two franchises. Like,
0: I could definitely see the the actor in both, um, whereas this one is is quite polar. It's quite mm. distant. It's so frosty and. and <laughs> um. Frusty. quite abstaining from human. And, and this is really an ode to... Uh, I mean, this is one of the most prominent examples of neo-noir, which is obviously a mm. subgenre of, yep. of, of sci-fi and, and, and noir. And uh, this is one of those... The, the most... Probably one of the pillars of that genre. Um, you can't have a conversation about neo-noir without talking about this film. Mm. And so, obviously, his character had to be more akin to noir... Leads Yeah, like a noir um, detective classic 30s. Yeah, place. which we talked a little bit about on like things like The Third Man and stuff like that yeah, when we yeah. were looking into that. So I don't think we've done it yet proper. No. No, uh, we got it though. Third man's great. Absolutely. Uh and you know, even like there there are other films from that time, obviously, anything like Humphrey Bogart or anything like that, or even if he goes, you know, with Polanski with Chinatown. Mm. Um, and I, I find it really interesting because that, I think that's why this film really put both of them, really just locked them in as these are really talented performers or directors, and, and I think that really kind of set Harrison Ford up for a pretty successful 80s career and then pushing into the 90s, mm. and then he didn't really need to do too much after that. He did do stuff, obviously, but didn't have to.
1: Well, that's the thing. I don't, I don't know if this film, specifically for Harrison Ford, is like the film... That's cemented. I thought like at this point he's already well cemented, and okay. it, it feels like he's definitely doing something different with this film. And I personally think he's sort of running on autopilot, but I also don't think that hinders the film. I don't think that makes the film worse because he, he, him as a character or Deckard as a character is one of many elements that make this world tick. And Blade Runner is all about the world building, about the historical piece from twenty nineteen. <laughs> which we can call a historical piece now. Mm. Um, but in all seriousness, I, I think his role, you know, that 30s, 40s detective, but in this obviously a very different looking futuristic world, um, I think his place in it doesn't need to be important. It almost shouldn't be important because it is more interesting to learn about the replicants and
0: how that all works. Well, I, I think his automated It's funny you say autopilot. mm but I think that's a deliberate choice because he's meant to be more yeah well, exactly he's meant to be more uh, distant and more lack like lack humanity because we're trying to do one of the most conventional um, traits of the sci-fi genre, which is that debate between artificial intelligence and humanity, where mm. where that line is, and obviously by making Roy the more animated and and pursuer of knowledge and, and life and have those right, desperation and he has those
1: reaches of emotion where he's angry and frustrated and desperate
0: and and so driven to have someone remember him or have some form of legacy mm. and he thinks at first that's through buying more time going to his creator and um and and asking for more time but you know in the latter parts of the film it, it's actually to do with the fact that he gets to have his his final words are heard by someone right and that's the legacy that i think is so prominent which we're going to talk about that last scene obviously mm-hmm. yeah a little bit later on but um while he is more at first more automatic he just sees it as oh, i'm 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 a killer i like for for pun intended here he, he's just a killing machine he mm. just he is just there to do the job he sees them doesn't see them as humans he sees them as its and that transformation only really starts to begin with Descartes with his re- building of a relationship with rachel um, right which is, I think is quite huge because um, he does fall in love with a with a replicant. Mm. Bit, yeah I'd be in a very traditional noir sense where it's not as romantic it's, or, it's, or nice yeah, it's very quite very desperate and lonely mm.
1: and and almost a bit underexplored. I actually think this film in general is just a little too short. you know, I watched the final cut, which is the longest cut, and probably it's the one that Ridley Scott says like this is the cut you need to watch, and it's less than two hours long, yeah, I was kind of shocked, and by the end, I was like there's a lot of things I've Felt, and in and, and terms of leaving a legacy behind, I think the film does more than enough to to show off its visuals and, and leave ideas in your head, implanned ideas, if you will, into your brain. Um, but there were things, like I wish there was a bit more fleshed out with Harrison Ford's I wish that their relationship was a bit more fleshed out, even though I think it's, it perfectly fits the story because you're right, it's about them falling in love. It's about the emotion, what it means to be alive, as a replicant even. But the execution was like, ah. I mean, his strength isn't this his strength is the visuals that yeah. really Scott I mean
0: oh the aesthetic is is 100% the that's why I said the iconography yeah yep. the, the the fact that this was based off a, a motion comic right it's a it's a oh. comic wasn't it? It's just it was artwork a, I
1: thought it was a novel 60s um, novel
0: oh uh, the do androids dream of electric sheep yep. yeah so that's part of it but the aesthetic okay. side the aesthetical side was actually just based off a bunch of artwork interesting very like just stills artwork so there wasn't that actually that much to go off. Like and a, and another fun fact for you. I know I already did my trivia fact. He <laughs> never read the novel. Oh, interesting. So very interesting. Um, which I find kind of baffling um, because how do you base something off something you haven't read? But I'm not going to touch that one. Um, no, it's it's
1: very interesting. I mean, uh, so you're talking about Ridley Scott.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I mean, he didn't write it, but
1: you're right. There's still like there's still maybe it was so much-, much. Maybe
0: it's Philip K. Dick that didn't. Reader, oh, I have to double check. Let me double check this. One of the two. Okay, interesting. Creative heads, because Philip K. Dick's the
1: the writer, right? Well, that, that's what I'm saying. It's like Ridley Scott. Like, yeah, he, obviously, his his job as a director is to bring the script to life, but that that is that is, frankly, that is some that, there is some balls on Ridley Scott if that's true. If he didn't even read. Yep, Ridley Scott did
0: not read the book that it was based off.
1: That's crazy. Um, yeah, and I remember reading stuff that the author did. I think the author passed away before the something, movie finished. green? What was hmm? say? Is, is something green. Oh, gosh. Um, oh, that. you know what? I might have literally just deleted it off my... Yeah, Philip K. Dick was the original author. Mm. Um, I literally just deleted it off my notes. And I, control Z, that, Zeke. We all need Control Z mm. in our lives. Um, I think he passed away before the movie was finished, but he did see he early it, visual effects. Hurt, st- no, he loved it. Did he love it? He said he loved it. Like, mm. the visual was I think perfect. he hated the first draft. Yeah, he hated the first draft. Yeah. He hated it, and then he liked the next draft a little better, and then the visuals. He was like, "This is perfect."
0: Yeah. So it's it's really interesting, kind of the tornado of how this project came to fruition when mm. you think about it. Like it, I think what I like about this film, and we've got a really, I think it's really important, obviously with this being a director's corner, to to co- to compare it, particularly to its first, like with Alien. Right. Alien is a great film, and I think it's one of the best it is probably the best sci-fi horror film there is. It's mm. also one of the tightest. It is right. so inch by inch tight. Um, it is one of the most efficient films in terms of story ta- simplified storytelling. Mm. And obviously, I think that one of the best parables to that would be like A New Hope, where A New Hope is so, so basic in its structure. Like, it's so like one, two, three in its acts. Like, you right. can clearly identify the hero's journey and you can really do that with Alien 2 um not 1 2 uh, 1 not 2 right. and was wrong um the first alien film and this film i think definitely tries to do more and it's really important it's really great that neither of us have really put the time into 2049 because we're watching this film just based off the parameters that yeah, exactly. everyone had for about th- for 35 years mm. Because, what was it, 2017, 2018, yep, 2017 There you go. So, there was 35 years between the two films. Mm. And so, a lot of the diagnosis that this film had came from mostly speculation, or mostly trying to read into the very small scope we had. And right. I actually think quite a couple of Kubrick films do this too. Um, like, where they... I, I like... It's funny we brought up The Shining with your trivia facts. Because yeah, yeah you know, if we go back to our episode conversation there, there was a lot of subjectivity with the ending of that film, what we kind of interpreted from mm. it. Um and neither of us had read the Stephen King work that it was based off. And so there isn't really a, a confirm we, we we I like personally, even with stuff that's based off source material, to take the film as an isolated incident. You know we right. can't Always be like, well, it's explained in the novel because it's like, well, ninety nine percent of us aren't going to what- read the Yeah, I the think
1: novel. I think mean, narratively, a film needs to be self evident and self contained. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, it's perfectly fine to talk about like, oh, this casting decision happened here because of this, but in terms of narrative, you need to watch the film from start to finish and understand it. This isn't the latest Star Wars yeah, movies, <laughs> exactly.
0: And you and so I think Kubrick does it quite a bit with his open to subjectivity stuff too. Mm. Um, and I even think PTA does it too. So I think why this film, like you said, you walked away from it. It's just under two hours, which I think is great. Like, it's not too bloated, and it leads a lot to really analyse the scenes that we're given. Like, Mm. it's even subtle things, like with Deckard, with how he talks to Rachel. At first, he refers, when he's talking, when he finds out Rachel's a replicant, a very advanced model, who doesn't actually know she's a replicant at first. Right. He refers to her as an it, with no gender association mm-hmm. and obviously because it's, it's a robot, robot yeah. so there is no gender association yet in latter scenes when she's talking about playing the piano he says you or she mm-hmm. like he starts to associate gender or associate identity with her yeah i'm humanizing them in a way and it's a very subtle line change and it's a blink and you'll miss it thing but the fact of the matter is we had thirty-five years to break down this film between films, so people did do that, and people did formulate why this film is so intelligent.
1: Mm. Well, that it's it's interesting all the stuff with the replicants to that it versus sheep sort of argument. Mm. The the opening text, which I think is great, I did, the very very original preview cut. It was actually just the um, dictionary definition of a replicant. Mm while in the, the, the other cuts of the film they've changed it to a more traditional, like, this is what this is, and this is the replicants. I think it's great because it, it simplifies everything you need to know when you need to know. Um, but it uses the line, um, whereas the, the, they reword it from execution to retirement. They're justifying killing these machines because to them it's it's slavery, it's classism.
0: Yeah. That's what they're doing with these machines. And, and that's a huge yeah. distinction. Like, they're not, like, Deckard in his own way and the way society sees him he's not a butcher he's right. he's retiring them he's just putting putting them down like dogs or, or or like putting them down like you know they're they're old it's time for their their time's up you know yeah retiring like you said replacing the word from retire like from executing to retiring is a huge distinction of, yeah. of classism and, and and why replicants are seen as subhuman
1: it's sad <laughs> it is but and
0: yet i think that's really important why he's made you know roy batty's character and Pris and and why these characters emote a lot more like right. they're more extreme with their emotions whether that be more volatile or 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 just more desperate mm. compared to their human counterparts who are all very controlled and monoc- monochromatic people and yeah
1: well, mm. they're expressing the white, the wider gamut of their emotions more than Descartes, mm. more than a lot of human characters do. Yeah,
0: and I think it's and it's it's all deliberate. Mm. And I think that I personally think that there's enough lore exploration in there to understand the plot. And the fact that the film makes you want to explore that stuff more is to its benefit rather yeah. than its detriment.
1: No, it's good that it leaves you wanting more. I, I think my earlier comment was just like the more like the character stuff, which. It's fine. I, I don't mind it. I don't mind that Harrison Ford feels like he's on all part because you're right. I think that's part of his character and th- there are little examples. Like, he does like the fake nerdy voice when he's pretending to be a reporter. Like there's little bits of like charismatic changes in there. Um, but I just thought if, if there was just a slight longer running time because this this feels like a big epic film. I think it, it could have had a longer running time. I was entranced mm. the whole way through. I know some people find it boring. Psh, I, I don't understand psh. that point of view but... I don't know. I just. I wish. Uh, it, it. I wish there was more, and that's totally fine to leave the movie with that note, wanting more. Absolutely. So uh, it, it's. Yeah, it's not too much of a complaint on my end. I do love the idea of the implanted memories, though. You know, and and, and the idea of like, yeah, replicants. You know, that they're, they're they're self-aware, or you know, I think therefore I am. That's a quote that's used in the film. I, but sorry, what were we gonna say?
0: No, I I actually think that you're a hundred percent correct though with your point and it's funny because if you really like this sort of exploration of identity in this implanted memory sort mm. of stuff westworld has now taken that idea and completely interesting put it you know with their hosts i mean they call them hosts instead right. of replicants but it's the same ideology i mean yeah and they're implanted with memories that aren't their memories and then they discover that what they like they start to discuss, and the three seasons of that show are now going to have a fourth and final season which i don't know what's gonna oh Uh, i'm so excited for that but that show and i'm glad that they're going to go forward like they've already said that's it after the the fourth season Mm -hmm. like they're not going to go anymore after that that show has taken sort of what this taken this ball and ran with it and really exposed it and obviously it's not in a noir setting like this one is it's way more just in a sci-fi um purist sort of sense um but it's it's definitely there for sure the the theology and of what to err is human or what it means to be human yeah Um,
1: well well, just just the idea of the implant uh, it's scary it's scary to not be able to trust your own memory mm because it's one of the only things you can purely trust and i mean first off that's my favorite rick and morty episode is when they have the parasites inset memories in people it's just such a brilliant traumatising idea and that this film kind of tackles it's very
0: interesting too with um there's actually one of those episodes in Love, Death and Robots actually mm. plays into that beyond the Aquila Rift which was probably one of my favourite episodes of that anthology mm. and it, it involves that but I'll, I'll say I would love for you to, if you're going to watch one episode probably watch that episode because it really ties into this this conversation um and, yeah, no, I, I find it really interesting too because it obviously starts to lead to Deckard at points in time even questioning if he's, mm. if he's human or is he a replicant because technically he's, uh, for us as the audience, and it's obviously left deliberately ambiguous, I think, um, that he is, and, and obviously, you know, people are going to be listening to this review when they have seen 2049 and they'd be able to answer that question, but that's okay. why... I kind of like having that tunnel vision. Yeah, exactly. Because um, I don't know if
1: 2049 even answers that question. I imagine it does, because I remember hearing stuff. Not that I remember it, but...
0: Yeah, I know um, Gosling's is a replicant. I'm oh. pretty sure. Or like, that's Why would like, you spoil that? Well, no, it starts with him like that. Well, still, though.
1: <laughs> I know nothing about the movie. You spoiled oh, well. it for me. Oops. Oops. Fucking hell. <laughs> oh, well, that's fine. Um, no, but I was looking at... I think the scene for me, because I said it earlier, I don't think Deckard, I don't think the film focuses too much on his Mm self-identity. The one scene for me, and this isn't even in every cut of the film, is when he has that unicorn sort of dreamlike sequence where it's like, is that an implanted memory? Is that something that he can't explain? For me, that's like the one, like, okay, there's a bit of a hint there. For which part? The unicorn. There's like a brief moment when he's playing the piano. Which cut did you watch for this? Final. Final okay well it's in there then yeah yeah with the, the, it's a very brief moment of a unicorn just it's very um uh twin peaks for like a split second mm. and um i think i think that's sort of a clue that maybe he's a replicant
0: yeah but... i think it's i think scott has gone on to say he is but then i don't know if that holds up because that could be a pre we don't know could be a pre 2049 so that could easily have been retconned between interesting interesting Films. if we're taking this off face value I personally think he's not
1: yeah I don't I don't think he is either
0: based on the film
1: final cut within that parameter I don't think he is um because the film doesn't
0: but that's the ambiguity that's the ambiguity to, of it yeah like what's and, and that's why I kind of really like Westworld really expands on this idea a bit more um as certain characters find out that they are not human it's really interesting right um so uh, this 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 film's great, um, mm-hmm. and you know we've we've talked we've talked quite a bit about um, Deckard's character, and probably should talk a bit more about uh, Rutger Hauer. I always forget this. Rutger Hauer <laughs> um, as as Roy Batty, because he's probably yeah. the other really important sort of uh, element of this of yeah. this
1: film. Well, he's he's on that end where he's a replicant. He obviously knows he's a replicant, and and that's sort of almost becomes his whole existence because it is about, um, you know, I mean, he meets his maker, but it, it's about achieving something. It's like you said, leaving a mark. And...
0: Well, it's leaving memory. memory. Mm. I think memory is a huge emphasis this film has the whole way through between Rachel not being, when she realises that her memories aren't her memories, but yet she thinks they're her memories. And then Deckard mm. is starting to question his own uh, you know, sort of what was that implanted in me or is that a is that a real memory? Like right. memory is huge through line of this this film. And obviously Baddies is is he knows he's going to die. Like yeah. he has that mortality uh, ticking time bomb on him. He knows he's eventually like he's set to only have an, an eight, nine year lifespan. And hmm. and I think it's four, isn't it? it four, four year um, lifespan. Yeah. So it's not like he's really is just labor and get and his experience. And it plays back into his, is his monologue, you know, that he's seen the things that people, despite having way more time than him, they wouldn't have seen because hmm. they were too busy, you know, grounded and living their life the way that, you know, they were told to live it. And, and I think for him, it's, it's about living, and and that's the that's the that's the most important thing. Yet he's being retired. Yet all he wants to do is live and experience things. Yeah, yeah. People that have the time to don't, and that's where we get that blurry grey line of is he human or is he a like what what does it mean to be human?
1: Yeah, well, just the capacity to have those emotions and and to deliver the monologue with that amount of emotion. Mm
0: yeah it's like well
1: clearly there's that that was that was the trick is like, oh, these people they're superior to us in terms of like their form and their athletic ability equal in intelligence but the emotion that that's the con that's the thing they're not meant to have but of course they do develop that they become self-aware and
0: brutal yeah
1: and and what's interesting is that he apparently rewrote that monologue himself the night before it was apparently much longer and less specific and it didn't have that, uh, sort of the metaphor of the tears within the rain. It didn't have that before that then. a was memory. It's, um,
0: uh, it's, the, it's the futile nature of, mm-hmm. of someone on this earth. If you leave this earth alone, um, no one will remember you. And it comes back to that ultimate ultimatum he's given when Deckard's hanging there for dear life. Um, if he had let Deckard go, he would have died alone. And right. no one would have remembered him. Interesting. And I think that's really important. That's a really important distinction because he had every reason to let Deckard go. He yeah, absolutely. He chose... He
1: should to, have let him drop.
0: <laughs> he just killed all his friends. Um, but for him, what was the important thing is he knew he was going to die. So if Deckard had died, Fallen mm. had died, and then he had died on that roof alone, no one would have been left with the legacy of remembering him Yeah. at all. Because he had killed his maker. He killed his creator. Yeah. Um. Rachel never even met him at a... So... Yeah, and all his friends are dead. And so. all his friends are dead. So he saves him, delivers that monologue, and then dies. But... And yet, and we do know this for a fact, obviously Harrison Ford is in 2040. Yeah, man. okay, fair enough. He's on the DVD cover, I'll give you that. <laughs> so we know that legacy has carried on. Yeah. He will be remembered by someone on this earth. Yeah. And then that's where that legacy comes, that memory legacy. So technically... He accomplishes what he set out to do.
1: Right. Yeah, so, absolutely.
0: And that's where, it, this is one of the, I mean, more, more, one of the more purist noir uh, points of view um, or, or genre, genre tropes or narrative tropes is our antagonist and protagonists are often polarity flips. Mm. Like we like our antagonist more than we like our protagonist. Deckard's the protagonist of this film. That doesn't make him the hero. And I think that's always the important distinction that Hmm. You know, film. We sometimes forget. Oh, just because they're called pro doesn't mean they are the the good guy. Uh, yeah, they're just well, the, the yeah, journey we're following.
1: It's inter- Yeah, because his entire role is to hunt down and kill these clearly emotive beings. They're replicants. They're androids. But like, obviously, the whole film is going out of its way to blur those lines and to show that these things are capable of thinking and, and emoting. That's, that's so noir purist. So we're following an assassin. Yep. That's our protagonist, is an assassin. Yeah,
0: but that's uh, and that's noir purist at its, at its most form, that our protagonist is not necessarily the good guy, and yeah. the antagonist, the person that's actually in his way, is the one that actually has the more uh, hero, uh, what is it, paragon-related right. um, ideologies, and that's definitely true in yeah. this. And... He does accomplish his goal, and technically, Descartes accomplishes his. He hunts yeah. down all the replicants, but it, but it's at what ju- cost? It, exactly, yeah. it's the journey he went under it. You know, he ends up running away with Rachel.
1: Well, that's the thing is. So with the ending, and of course, we're not going to be talking about the extended ending. It's just oversimplifies everything. I'm actually going to talk about what cut has what in a moment, mm. um, but we're going to stick with the ending where the elevator door closes and we cut to Crass, which is a great cut. I don't mm. care what anyone says. I love that ending. Um, it, it's a reflection on you know roy who has spent the majority of his four-year life in in the goal of trying to get more life and obviously he achieves the goal of of preservation of people remembering him but he still spent half of his life if that if not more just trying to extend said life as Mm. opposed to what deckard and rachel are doing at the end which is clearly they're running away and obviously within the rounds of the film within the rounds of that cut it's ambiguous how far they get whether even make it out alive of... Is it L.A.? Is that where it takes place? Yeah, yeah. yeah L.A. Um, and like you said, obviously, Deckard's still alive at least 35 years later. Or, or uh, 30? 30 years later. But is it
0: Deckard, or is yeah. it a replica of Deckard? Mm, we don't know these things.
1: That's true. But like they, they, We just it, know he's in the trailer. But in terms of the goal of the characters, it, it is to live their life. Yep. It isn't to search for more life. It's Despite knowing that they may not only have... Very long left, or that Rachel could die in the next four years, they're still going out and they're going to have that life together. Which again, I don't like how the relationship was executed, but you need it. You do need it to drive that point home. So I think I think it's a great ending. I don't mean, oh, think I his beug- disassociation beug- from
0: her is his sort of inhuman way of conducting that relationship. Mm. Just plays more into that question: Is he a replicant? Is he capable of emoting correctly? Is he? But,
1: but even if he was a replicant. He should be able to, not because not Roy exactly. Can.
0: Yeah, but Roy also recognised because like, this is the thing. If if Deckard was a replicant designed to just kill other replicants, why would he have emotion capacitors? Mm. Like this is the thing that I find really interesting because some replicants are used as labour, but they're also used to look after families. They use like so they they do have the capacity too, and and they they do emphasize that Roy's situation or the four replicants that escape, Mm. that's more of a blip. Like the fact that they are hunted down is because they have realized who they are and they have the capacity to emote and capacity to live. Whereas Deckard keeps to his job the whole way through. Mm. So his emotions might just be an out for Rachel might just be outlier or might just be a program or what they expect him to be. And, and who knows? Maybe twenty forty nine expands on that.
1: Idea yeah, but if we're going with the fact that we we need to keep within the realms of this film, yes. and what this narrative says, I just think the writing's is not quite where it needed to be. I think it's as simple as that. I I don't know. And and like uh, I I think his performance is totally fine as this sort of he hey, just rolls you, with be, it. To be fair, mm. I
0: can't disagree with you from a Ridley Scott point of view because romance and Ridley Scott films have been. Lackluster at best. Like, right. I can't think of one well, that I'm like.
1: Eh. There are several, and I do love this film. I want to clarify, but yeah. you know, I want to. Cl- I want to also say that there are several like really awkward, weird scenes in this film. I think the scene when that when they first kiss or that. I get that it's meant to be like this sort of. Uh, it's it's pretty off kilt as it is, but even just the way it's shot it is a bit awkward. Is a bit awkward. Um, I thought the scene when um, Leon finds Deckard and they have that little fight. Like in in the streets before uh, Rachel like steps in, I thought that was really awkward. I thought maybe there should have been a bit of music because there's a couple of guys like ha throwing in the throwing mm-hmm. in the car ha. Even the line delivery is a bit weird. Like there's just awkward moments in this film. And my friend Keish, who I watched it with her the first time back in 2017, I watched mm-hmm. the film leading into 2049, which still haven't seen. So that's, speak for that what you will. Um, but she laughed hysterically at the end when Roy bashes his head through the wall during that little final... It's like, why? (laughs) Why not just walk in the room and say that? Like, there are just really awkward moments in this film that I think are a little unintentionally awkward or funny. Fair. I'm not going to go away this whole review without mentioning that. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say.
0: Would you like to jump into highlight scenes or do you have something Um, else you want to like
1: I just want to talk a little bit more about the, the effects and the, the visual style. I know we sort of touched on it already, but specifically, because I watched it this time. This is my second time watching. I was like, I'm going to look out for how the world building is done through environment and like how it opens with this little street market and how it's sort of engulfed in this rainy, muddy world with these tall neon buildings. And um, and like I said earlier, I like to compare visual effects in films to Star Wars in terms of their release. So as you mentioned, this came out between Empire and, and Jedi. Mm-hmm so it's interesting to look at the effects of this film and then look at the effects of those two films or even 2001 which came out decades before this film did Yeah. I mean, I think the effects are excellent I they're it still up. excellent yeah. yeah, it holds up really well I imagine that's keyframing with like the I think they're called spinners the little flying ships that they, they fly around with spinners I'm guessing they like keyframe or, or um, composite those into the shots of the models those are all models I mean, they're clearly models but mm-hmm. they still look excellent it's great design um, but I think this is a trait of Ridley Scott as well in Alien, where I think the visuals are just so intriguing and so, int- it's such a distinctive, muddy style. And that's why I think that's where his, um, strength is, I guess.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: I mean, for these earlier films, I know. This- I love
0: the, I love the visual effect. They still hold up to me. Yeah. And I'm, they might've been retouched occasionally, but.
1: Yeah, I think, I think the final cut, and this might be a good time for me to talk 07, about. 07,
0: I think it was, wasn't it?
1: 07, that's correct. Um, I think the biggest change from that, from the director's cut, which um, Ridley Scott actually didn't have um, a say on the director's cut, which is a bit false advertising yeah. there. Yeah. Um, the final cut's the only one he had, but it's pretty similar in terms of the edit, but the, the colour grade is very different in the final cut. It's very different, and there are some shots that have been really fixed up. There's one, like, a low angle looking up at this, like, tall tower and building. It's all smoky and the bird flies around. If you look at the comparisons between that and the theatrical cut, it's, like, literally just a random street with, like, a like a power plant thing. Like, it looks so bad. It's like, they, what, they just went outside the studio and shot that? And, like, they added all the mood in in yeah. the final cut. It's really interesting. I was like, man, that shot made it in the theatrical that's cut? Crazy. That's insane. Um, well, yeah, if you don't mind, I want to quickly tell you what the differences are between, because this is probably one of the most infamous examples of there being so many different cuts and versions
0: of this film. Run through cuts
1: with Jake. Cuts with Jake. (laughs) Yeah, have a cut with Jake. Um, so there were, there were really three main cuts that it gets a bit muddy in here because there's the, the U S theatrical release, the international theatrical release, the U S broadcast version. Like these are just like basic things that most films actually have, where it's like a couple of shots have been taken out. Like region-related ones. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Or TV, they get rid of some of the violence or the swearing, or they just cut it a bit shorter for commercials. Like, those are pretty standard. Um, And then there is the work print prototype version, which was the version shown to test audiences before the movie came out. And this was... The negative reaction to this is specifically why that alternative ending was made, where they're driving around. And there's that terrible, terrible voiceover from Harrison Mm -hmm. Ford. He clearly didn't want to do it and just, like, butchered it, <laughs> or phoned it in. Um, it's so bad, but it basically just repeats that, and it's less ambiguous of, oh, well, you know, she, we thought she had four years. Turns out she didn't. Like, oh, great. That's a great way to end your movie. Um, producer's fault. Not really. It was really, bad. It was really bad. Yeah. Um, so that that was in the original 1982 theatrical cut. That's the first cut I reckon is most important, with the happy ending and the terrible voiceover. Um, And then there's a director's cut, which gets rid of a lot of that. Um, And uh, there's, like, little... Oh, the three main changes, actually, to the director's cut. Um, There's actually 13 explanatory voiceovers. There's 13 lines or or bits of exposition, which is crazy. And also, um, the dream sequence of the unicorn running is not in the theatrical version. Um, And then, like I said, the difference between directors and final is just mostly color grade and... Little things like that, and like very specific shots of like, oh, a shot of him reloading a gun is taken in and out. And I can't wait for it's the
0: final final cut.
1: That's all such. A, I mean, look, I'm I'm pretty content that the 2007 final cut is it,
0: because from from
1: reading it, it's the only one that Ridley Scott actually likes or wanted to make in terms of what made it. the film and stuff. So, Fair I, I think it's pretty fine.
0: Well, it is time for us to jump into our highlight scene, Jake. Mm. What is your highlight scene?
1: My highlight scene, because there's a few obvious ones in here I, I wanted to point out actually one of the very first scenes is the interview the first time we use the the test I mm. think it's called the, the, the Voigt-Kampf test mm. something along those lines where um, it is the test that, that uh, Blade Runners conduct on replicants to see if they're replicants and uh, I just love the dialogue exchange in that the fact that Leon who we don't know at this point is a replicant or not I think re-watching it it's actually really obvious from the get-go just like his emotional outbursts but that's, it's just such great dialogue like to learn about a replicant's action and yeah. how he interrupts nervously. Like, oh, what's a tortoise? Why am I in the desert? Like, these really specific, minute uh, things to the question that mm-hmm. are not relevant at all. I just thought that was a great little dialogue exchange and a good way to introduce replicants.
0: That's a really good one. Yeah. I would say, I mean, that's actually up there with being probably one of the better ones. I like the first introduction that um, Deckard has... To I want to say it's... I've got to double-check this now.
1: I've got all the character names here.
0: Just quickly run through. Are you talking about the CEO? Yep. Oh, yeah, Tyrell. Tyrell. The whole Tyrell Corporation introduction is really mm. cool. The juxtaposition between... At this point, we had spent a lot of time in the dirty slum streets. We see Deckard's apartment. So when we go to the Tyrell Corporation, the juxtaposition of where we can really see where the source of power is. You mm. know? and sort of see the hierarchical exchange between corporation and and people um it's all gold the the color the color juxtaposition is probably the most prominent that we go from that monochromatic dirty browns and grays to mm. this bolstering gold and I, I imagine when we jump into 2049 it's going to be even more polarizing in its color grade so yeah um I really like that exchange and I like his exchange later with Roy Batty ah oh, yeah hey, that that yeah, death of scene yeah the eye-popping eye-popping oh
1: right yeah 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 the actual yeah the eye-popping that's another one only in the final cut is some I mean he does it but some of the close-ups of the eyes like literally bleed like that violence is only in the final cut so it's interesting I do love that scene as well really quickly and one of the reasons is it's a great example of how they go out of their way to motivate like the crazy insane lighting in the film because one of the examples is he says it's too dark or or it's is yeah it's too dark to do the test, and they use that as an excuse to bring like the blinds down if you were, and then they completely change the entire lighting of the situation, and they do that as well with um, Sebastian's apartment with like the the spotlights from like these police spinners up mm. in the air are lighting the hallways inside through the window. It's I love all that stuff, but um,
0: that's no, a great scene too. No worries. Well, Blade Runner, nineteen eighty two's final cut version is currently out, I believe on. I want to say Netflix, but I think... Nope. I'm, nope.
1: Nope. It is only on binge, and I don't know which cut it is, because it's only an hour and 51 minutes, but That'd it doesn't it. have the ending, though, the alternative ending. There you go. So, that's probably the main thing, is you don't want the ending the voice. It voiceover. was at a point.
0: I think 2049's on... Yes, it is. There you go. Speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week?
1: Oh, a bit of a lighter week this week. Um, coming to Stan is American Assassin, the 2017 film with Michael Keaton, and 1994's The Sum of Us, which stars Russell Crowe, who, of course, was in another Ridley Scott film at some Bloody point. Mm. On Disney Plus this week, you got The New Mutants and Love Simon are coming to the service. On Prime, you got After We Collided, the 2020 film, and Pixels, which actually comes out on the 10th, which is my birthday. Very exciting. Very nice. uh, coming to Binge is Once Were Warriors and Ocean's Eight. Coming to Netflix is Awake which sees... It's a new film. It sees a devastating global event that wipes all electronics and eliminates all people's ability to sleep, leading to a former soldier who attempts to find a solution with her daughter. So, that's a documentary. I'm kidding. That's not a documentary. Um, (laughs) But that's coming new. I actually don't know who stars in it. And also, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse returns to Netflix. It was... That was... When that left Netflix, that was like one of the biggest deals. People were so upset about that. Well, Spider-Verse. Yeah. But it's coming back in the next week, so it's exciting. And new in cinemas is Cousins, which follows three uh, Maui cousins who all live very different lives, especially after one of them is taken away from a family and raised in an orphanage. And finally, Heroic Losers sees neighbors in a small town in Argentina plan to recover the money they lost after learning their bank manager and a corrupt lawyer have stolen it. So uh, a bit of a lighter week. There's a lot of of random stuff Mm. from, from cinematic history coming into the, the streamings, the streamers, the digitals. The digitals. Yeah, the digitals. But, um, yeah, that's it. That's what's coming to cinema.
0: No worries. Well, it's time for us to move into our film of the week. We're moving to the 1970s mm. with another poll from our countdown through the decades retrospective. But, Jake, who won the poll and what are we watching?
1: <laughs> Here's the thing. I We both nominate a certain film. But I mean once the film's selected, the film's selected. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we do for fun keep track of whose films got selected. Yeah. But I, I don't like to think about who won each poll. It's which film yeah, won each poll. That's a very like. modest winner. Oh, thank yeah. you. Well, well to be fair, we are tied now. Free for free. That's a
0: hot streak you're on though. Three in a row. Yeah, yeah. You were three in a row.
1: Yeah, I came you were free, And then am now I'm getting free in a row. It's 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 called communism Zeke. <laughs> <laughs> this was a tight week though. It was. Um, not as many voters this time. The vote was 20 to 16, so Annie Hill lost, unfortunately. Uh, but of course, in its place, we're doing the Sydney Lament film from 1975, Dog Day, Afternoon. You know something, people? You're going to be remembered the rest of your lives for the day you got held up and kidnapped.
0: At approximately 3 p.m. on August 22nd, 1972, Sonny Wurtzik and Sal Naturali entered the first Brooklyn Savings Bank and attempted a robbery. Hey, Nobody move! Get over there. The attempt failed. There's no money here. They picked it up this afternoon. There's only 1100 This is too much. It's for you. What? The police arrived. This is Detective Sergeant Eugene Moretti. What are you doing in there? For the people of the neighborhood, it was a sideshow. Sergeant! But for Sonny and Sal, the hostages, and the cops, it was a dog day afternoon.
1: A man decides to rob a local Brooklyn bank to pay for his lover's operation, but he is forced to take hostages after the heist does not go as intended. This sounds like a sticky situation. I've never seen this film.
0: I haven't either. I've had it on DVD for the longest time, but I haven't watched it, so I hadn't seen either. So I was really happy that we put two films up that neither of us have seen at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're going to be diving into another Sidney Lumet film. I mean, that's going to be great. Let's be real.
1: Yeah, we haven't done it since the last Director's Corner. <laughs> that's funny. Look at uh, that. The Twelve Angry Men. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's
0: yeah. it. Wow. So that's, man. Wow, that's crazy. nearly exactly nearly a year, a year ago. He,
1: his would have been the fifties. This is the seventies. So it's. A, but we also uh, we also did this a little later than usual.
0: So maybe it has been a year. It could be. No worries. Crazy. Well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side podcast. I was Z. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Dog Day Afternoon. Woof woof.